0: This podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo, what? Homeo, what?
1: All right. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Good day. It's a Friday recording. Good
1: afternoon and good evening. Uh,
0: all of that.
1: Wherever you are, welcome. <laughs> Let's settle in. It's, there's, uh, a,
0: there's a YouTube person that I watch who starts her, mm-hmm. her, um, whatever her recordings by saying, you know, wherever you are in the world, a shout out to you. <laughs>
1: oh my God, really?
0: It gets on my nerves. I, that <laughs> would get say, on my nerves. As I well. know. Yeah. Um, I'm going to make a noise moving my chair. That's there fine. we go. There you go. It's not even a chair. It's not. It's a footstool. Yeah. I've been relegated to the footstool.
1: Ah, what a week. Sitting at your feet. Oh, please.
0: <laughs> what a week indeed.
1: I am, I am, I am uh, beyond whatever the word is. Oh,
0: please, don't even start with me. We we're
1: going to have a competition about... How, okay. Okay.
0: I've... How many
1: 14-hour days did you do last week? This week?
0: Uh, four, and one of them happened to have been a holiday. <laughs> I, the time that I had to take off for writing my thesis is really like smacking me in the head. I thought, oh, I'm finished. It's going to be like, yeah. you know, now only having one job. But, but I, we're
1: almost at the end of the academic year. Yeah. So that's something. And then it means it's kind of, you know, time for focusing on other things, right?
0: I'm still thinking about the fact that I taught every class this week. You did. I taught every session. Um, well, there, some of them are doubled, but including two 8 a.m. start clinics after 9 p.m. finishes the night before. Yeah, right. That's a lot.
1: Whoever scheduled those 8 a.m.s. They're uh,
0: her name is Lisa.
1: They're brutal. She's
0: listening. <laughs> She's on vacation this week she? because she knew that if I saw if I had seen the schedule, she'd have to run. <laughs> anyway, I I actually it's not, not I, about I, us. I, no. Um, anyway, but. It's, um, I was just thinking about why we're, why we're doing this on the Friday morning and it's because there was a clinic yesterday, but last night was, um, yeah, what did you
1: do last night?
0: Yeah. So we, we do these free classes each year. Alistair does the history of healing, uh, and I do homeopathy and integrative medicine. In other words, how sort of integrative strategies support the homeopathy. Nice. Yeah. And last night was the first one and, and. I actually really love teaching. This. I listened to
1: it; it was really good.
0: You went, you came for the whole thing. Thank
1: you. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> no worries, mate. No worries, mate. Uh, I like to think of those those eight lectures we do for each, yeah, as context. And for some reason, I think it's just me. Well, it's not just me, but gee, it helps. You know, I know we go to work and we're jobbing clinicians, and we're faced with Complex problems that we've got to yeah. you know work on and stuff, but to get to so to do that job well, context really matters. It totally matters, and I think. You and I suppose, know. and actually, I'm realizing why I'm saying that is because of a, a, an event that happened, which I must admit I'm still you know smarting from really. But you know, it was just a couple smarting. of smarting, just a couple of comments like, "Oh, do we have to do these history lectures again?" You know, it's just. Really interesting to hear that because I think it matters a lot. You know, we uh, and especially if history is taught from the perspective of how did this happen and this is a contemporary challenge we have, right. then you've got to learn the history.
0: Well, you have to. I mean, especially when it comes to homeopathy. Mm. And um, I actually taught a little bit of this the other day, mm. The the fact that we the the historiography of homeopathy, I mean, it's really easy to talk about, you know, sort of to allow ourselves to feel victimized by the man, you know uh, we've been taken down by allopathic medicine and big pharma and all that. It's just like not that true. Um, there are there are so many things that happened in the nineteenth century in homeopathy that have affected, oh my gosh, okay, sometimes uh, sometimes you need a visual. so we're sitting in Alistair's office. And he just found a hat that he is now wearing. It's called a, a Kubra. Is that what, what do you call it?
1: It's an a Kubra.
0: A Kubra. Mate. It's, and describe what it is. Forget about what I was talking about. No, I
1: want to hear what you're talking about. Yeah, but, hat's now are now I'm relevant. To,
0: but I'm sort of distracted.
1: So this is a, the quintessential Australian uh, cattleman hat. Or farmer. I'm gonna take a photo of you in this. Let me just get it on right there. There you go. All right, because it's um, uh, I believe rabbit skin, Uh, rabbit felt. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, these are amazing. Yeah. All weather. Like, when I wear this outside, this is my good one.
0: Right. You know, i get it. <laughs> right, that's your fancy one. That's not the one you wear to the farmer's market on Saturdays.
1: No, that one's a skanky one. But that one has been rained on. It's been blown around the yard yeah. along with me. Yeah. Can we get back to you, though?
0: Yeah. Um, I was talking about the context of... Homeopathy and especially 19th century homeopathy because there's this narrative that you know homeopathy was doing really well, like everything was great and there were hospitals and there were colleges and all, and then Flexner came along and boom. And that's not what happened actually. No. And I don't know that we're gonna get totally into that today. No, that's um, not the point.
1: But but context is the point. But
0: context is the point. And because so it's and surprising. So,
1: yeah, but so I was teaching the history stuff. I got yeah. a couple to go. You've got you were you were looking at the the look around at the crazy shape of the integrative medicine wellness space, and let's let's talk about what, what what's going on, right?
0: Yeah, sort of.
1: Mm. <laughs> Sort
0: of, sort of not. I mean, it's, um, it's sort of, (laughs) it's the idea of the, of the, the set of talks. It actually, it comes from um, a series that I used to do uh, back in the day when I started practicing in Philadelphia again. So I was in Minneapolis from what, 2001 to 2006. And then I moved back to Philadelphia. And as I was telling the group last night, you know, working in Minneapolis, it's like, it was the ideal place to be a homeopath because there yeah. were, well, there were lots of homeopaths and good ones, right? Um, there's a real culture of homeopathy because of Northwestern Academy and, you know, and Val O'Hanian and Eric Summerman. I mean, there were two sort of amazing homeopaths that anchored the community back in the early 2000s when I was there. And there was also, adjacent to that, there was a culture of self-awareness around self-care. I mean, it was the first per- time I met people who were gluten-free was, you know, 2001 in Minnesota and fragrance-free. Even like the uh, the co-op, the food co-op, the Wedge, had a, a, a checkout line for um, people who didn't have anything with fragrance so that if you had multiple chemical sensitivities, you could check out without being around somebody who just bought a new, you know, patchouli or whatever, you know. So I've, there was just such a culture of awareness around the different ways that um, we need to take care of ourselves. And when I moved back to Philly, it was that was not the case. And um, I had so many um, clients in my practice, kids um diagnosis being on the spectrum. And remember, two thousand six, like this was the beginning of here in, here in Philadelphia. It was the beginning of when I think we homeopaths were really seeing the first big uptick. I mean, I'm sure there were other people who were seeing it earlier, but that was, for me, that was when, when the first spike happened in my practice. And what came along with it was that um, the parents were really struggling to get their kids to eat, you know, anything but a small variety of foods. And, you know, parents of kids with pandas now have a similar issue, right? There's all sorts of um, this um, uh, avoidant restrictive food intake issue that goes along with some of these um, uh, diseases on the gut brain axis, and and so that experience informed my practice like a lot. Right, it was. It was the first time that I really felt like um, I couldn't just use homeopathy. Like I needed to help my clients to support their bodies, sort of in other ways. And and I think being in Minnesota, the people were doing it for themselves. You know, I mean, where was the person that wasn't sort of aware in some way at, at that time in my practice? But when I got back to Philly, it was just it was culturally really different. Mm. Did you have that happen? I mean, did you experience that yeah, I did. in Australia?
1: I mean, I remember the first time uh, the the woman sitting in front of me th- said the weirdest thing in my life. And it was like, I've become allergic to meat. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, that was 2004. And, you know, I'm going, what is this? I spent a bit of time doing primitive 2004 Googling. Yeah. And, um, you know, that Alpha was my 1st first- syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, when when that happens, I think you know we all. I think if you, you know, you're awake. You know, you you go. What's going on? If the second and the third and the fourth one then turns up, then you've got um, you, to you've you've got to look around and start thinking. And and the one thing that you keep saying in your lectures, and I've heard you say it twenty times over the years, which is incorrect.
0: What's that?
1: Is that when I met you for the very oh. first time? <laughs> oh
0: no, you're going to start with this again. At the end of the long <laughs> corridor.
1: Yeah, here we go. Is that? And we did have a conversation about your practice. You're
0: going to say you didn't give me a side eye, is what? I you're I didn't going to say. give
1: you. If it was a side eye, I was like, "Who's that hot?"
0: Shit? <laughs> Watch it. It's no, a family show.
1: It's a family show. It was um, no because I was um, at that stage, um, completely, exp- completely. I had moved from Alistair Homeopath Alternative to um integrative Mm. and i've and i was well down the road of of that and looking for practitioners that had integrated breath work or body work or nutrition or things to augment their practice or not augment their practices because homeopathy wasn't doing it or they weren't busy with homeopathy but to augment their homeopathy and make the homeopathy better. Okay,
0: so I'm gonna I'm gonna have a mature moment. Really, mm-hmm. I'm gonna change that story. Okay, I still like
1: it. No, it's a good but, story, but it's a story.
0: But it's okay. Well, then maybe I will take responsibility that maybe I was feeling defensive and or embarrassed. Embarrassed would be more like it. Oh, because because I take myself sort of seriously as a homeopath, <laughs> and you were writing your method book and. And you were, and we were talking about it. And I was talking about sort of this integrative approach that I took. And I think, if, if I'm if I'm really honest and fair, I think that there was a little part of me that um, I felt like I was I wasn't talking about homeopathy in the way that Ryan. sort of always identified who I was, right? But talking about something else to a homeopath that I didn't know.
1: And that's really interesting because, and going back to that point you made last night, it's that we've, we're fixated on the pills. And we totally are. Yeah.
0: We totally, totally are. And this is, and, and okay, so. All the drops.
1: Or, yeah, there are. Just one drop, magic pills. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The movies. Yeah, right.
0: Okay, so so now we've got a whole bunch of things. <laughs> we have now all the balls are in the air, right? And you. This so, is how we roll. This is how we roll. I just
1: kind of keep track of them all. I'm going to help you. I okay, well, you are <laughs> you because are I
0: caused the problem. Female body at a time, <laughs> so I'm right. relying on you. Okay, so here's the thing. You brought up the um, the allergy to me alpha gal. And remember I was saying to you, hmm. what did I teach this week because I felt like we were talking about some ideas of what to talk hmm. about today on the podcast and I said oh there was something from one of the classes that I took but now they I, I couldn't remember. Hmm. But so I I taught um, this class on Lyme disease. Hmm to the Tuesday night group, I think, Tango mm-hmm. Tuesday. And it's a class that I love for a bunch of reasons. And, and the, this is not a non sequitur because the alpha-gal allergy, so this is an allergy to meat proteins, um, usually presents first as beef. Now we're seeing a lot of pork. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, if I'm not mistaken, it originated in Australia. I mean, I think it's... Oh, I did not know that. I think so. And it's relatively new here, or mm. at least, you know, within the last, I don't know, five years or so. Maybe mm. it's more than that. But, um, and it is it is associated with Lyme disease. But do they have Lyme disease in Australia?
1: The, um, and sorry, that was the implication. That yeah. was my first experience of Lyme. Okay. Because that symptom came along with, they think I've got Lyme. You know, that was yeah. the first time I'd heard it. And so my client was, you know, what clients do, what patients do when they. Have a have symptoms, right? And then they project manage their own health as well as being sick. And she was, you know, researching. She said, "I think I've got this thing called a Lyme." Yeah. And so, you know, that was. So that it's was not it.
0: common in Australia in the way it no, is here. Oh no, my gosh. definitely not. Do you know that Well, my,
1: it might have been, but not for me.
0: Did do you know that my grandmother had Lyme? My dad's mom. And I had contract no she wasn't hypochondriac that's okay. my mother's family all hypochondriacs um which you know we we appreciate anyway um my paternal grandmother was diagnosed with Lyme disease and she this would have been in i don't know maybe the late 70s maybe early
1: eight,
0: Maybe in the early eighties, something like that, but before it was really common. And this is the funniest thing. It's like, you know, it's a tick borne disease and you think about people getting it like from being out in nature.
1: She never went outside, right?
0: She she is one of those Italian ladies that had her drive had her yard concreted so she could keep it clean. <laughs> you know, only Greeks and Italians do that.
1: I know. Right? It's
0: amazing. I, I saw a funny meme um, on one of my you know <laughs> Italian Instagram um, posts it was um, Italian dads watering their drive uh, watering the driveway oh, yeah. keeping it clean you know yeah. I mean that's the thing and yet my grandmother somehow wa- she was such an early adopter right she managed to get lime without even ever going to the woods um, but this this idea though <laughs> like this alpha gal right so this is really problematic I mean there are people who are struggling I have a a handful, I have a, a, a client that I see who's who has two kids who have this I don't see the kids um but they're you know she's really worried because they're getting on to be old enough to go to college and they've got a couple of food allergies and alphagal and i and I wonder about sort of this way in which evolution of sort of industrialization and pollution and all the changes that are happening in the world, you know, since changes in the food supply, since we moved away from being an agrarian culture and, you know, pasteurization, homogenization, you know, can, you know, like industrial canning and all this sort of thing. And, you know, you add to that the increased use of antibiotics and antibiotics in the food supply and antibiotic resistance that's come from overuse. Um, And you've got this dead gut stuff. You know, we talk about the microbiome and the terrain and all of that. But the the level of complexity is, is you know, when people try to solve that problem through a reductionistic way, we just create more problems. Like, you know, all the addition of of um, probiotics, then you get SIBO, right? It's like you can't win. And so one of the things that... Um, well, it works for some folks, but not for yeah, all folks. Yeah, it totally works for some folks. So one of the things we were talking about last night was... You know, kind of this return to the basics, right? So so the integrative model that I came up with back in, well, I guess it was like 2006 when I moved back here, it was um, this idea that these things that we do where we take responsibility for our health and well-being support support our bodies in a way that the homeopathic remedy can do its job. Right. And I mean, you know, we talk about this all the time that Hahnemann, like, we're not making this up. This isn't like a 21st century thing. Hahnemann had, you know, all the rules for diet and regimen, even had the homeopathic diet and so forth. And there were some who said that the homeopathic patients got better because of the homeopathic diet. Good. Right. As opposed to the to the remedy. But, you know, this idea was that you know, food movement. And, and when I talk about movement, I, I, I kind of consider it to be like body work. You know, as well as how we move our body, um, mindfulness. You know, uh, just the way that we in, the way that we interact with our life and sort of take responsibility for our emotional choices, but also stop and breathe, and then the array of integrative options that you know are available. Some of which play well with homeopathy, and some, you know, you kind of have to pick and choose your timing. and And the idea was like. There there have to be ways that we let go of all the emphasis on the pill because if you've got, you know, a digestive issue and you don't change your food intake, that's you can't expect the remedy to work, you know, against the tide and so forth. So, But what came out of it that was...
1: Although it does sometimes in some rare circumstances. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, and sometimes... Yeah. You know, like the gut biome idea. And This is part of this, this thing that happened where the, like the, bowel, the, the bowel nozodes, everybody wants a balnozode, take them all, right? So they, okay, polybalnozode, take it every day, sure. Um, but the idea is, and, and you can see this in the primary source materials from the, the Patersons who took on um, after Batch or Bach, the flower essence guy. Um, I, do you call him Batch or Bach?
1: When you find the factory... Yeah. There's a gentleman who answers the phone.
0: And he says, hello.
1: he does, actually. He <laughs> says, hello. Uh-huh. And you'll say something like, I want some bark flower remedies. And he'll say, excuse me, sir. He was British, not German. His name is Batch. How can I assist you today?
0: Ah. Oh. Yes. I'm going to call them.
1: <laughs> you do that. Can I just say that that was 1994? Okay. So I think he might have moved on. He might have. But, but it was a beautiful voice.
0: And you have it. That means you have it on good authority.
1: I have it on good authority. Okay, good because
0: yes. I I took it on. I heard it from somebody. I think it might have been from Will Taylor actually back in the day. Batch, batch, yeah, uh, yeah. And um, but but everybody else says box. So I feel like I want to translate. It's like petrol and gas. Anyway, but um, uh, you know when you go back to the primary source materials, it's really interesting to see that the their Petersons and and Batch were were. Cognizant that a good homeopathic remedy can also do what they initially postulated that the bowel nozodes would do, which is to flip the non-lactose fermenting bacilli, and that that can happen. You don't need a bowel to do it. You can do it with you know a regular remedy, although in some cases it's an efficient way to do it. Mm. Right, but it's funny because you know every now and again you give a remedy and a food sensitivity disappears. Or, you know, we see kids who, you know, kind of grow out of their allergies faster with an assist by a homeopathic remedy and so forth. But but there's this way in which, I, and I think this is because people are kind of sicker, we we have to take the strain off the vital force in order for the remedy to act. So, and, and, and actually, I say it's because people are sicker, but Hahnemann actually, I mean, that was what he was talking about. Like, in order to be cured of your chronic disease, you need to... You know, footnote to in 260, hmm. you know, like the homeopathic diet or the regimen or the avoidance of medicinal, you know, things or riding in a carriage or
1: Riding reading, in a carriage? Reading. Swinging.
0: Swinging is bad. Reading, lying down.
1: <laughs> Wearing woolen clothes. Woolen clothes. Next to the skin.
0: Mm-hmm anyway we'll stop there before we go on but um, but it so so this idea really felt important though that like there was this way in which people needed support um, and there was a way also that people kind of need something to do it's in other words like mm. you what were you gonna say
1: I just realized that when you're talking about this because this is essentially or this thread mm. is your journey to as a as a, as a Jobbing, thriving, homoeopath. Yeah. Your journey to going, I need to learn more about nutrition. Oh, I'm going to start thinking about and talking to my clients about movement. Yeah. And and mindfulness, and and, and other modalities. It was. I realised it's really different for me. Mm. And what happened? Because it was an event for me, and it was a rainy Easter. I'm going to say 2006, maybe seven.
0: And remembering everyone, Easter happens in the autumn in the
1: southern hemisphere. It always sort of... Of course it happens in the autumn, but the same thing happens because it always rains. Yeah. So Easter always rains. And it was an Easter at home. And so I did an audit. And I think I might have been tied up with an assignment for my master's. Hmm. And so I pulled out, I eventually pulled out of my filing cabinet the last 500 cases and spread them out on the floor,
0: yeah.
1: analyze them. And I was looking for something, but what I actually found, really weird, it was just like because I'm writing you know, features of each case down on a spreadsheet. Yeah. And what I found was that 94% of my clients were not monogamous. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by that I, was, I know. you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, they were seeing other practitioners right. or doing other medicinal stuff. Sure. And so I was stunned by that, totally came from left field. Yeah. And I realized, oh, my God, how can I ever say that arsenic was the remedy? We
0: talked about this recently. because we in, were, in a podcast? In a podcast. Because remember, we were talking about how when we were talking about this very thing, and when somebody gets better, we take all the credit. And when they don't,
1: we blame it on somebody else. <laughs> right. Well, in that case, apologies for just <laughs> not remembering that. But what it meant was I realized I needed to integrate Mm. I needed to integrate I needed to change my perspective anyway that was it
0: oh did you feel like you needed to take on I mean sort of being the person who assisted with that or you just
1: referred no no I knew that I was never going to go train in acupuncture I didn't want to do a weekend course in kinesiology or any color therapy or whatever but it was an acknowledgement that my clients were project managing their own health yeah and they were throwing the kitchen sink right. at their problem, yeah. and I was a part of it, and I therefore needed to f- to be a part of it, right. not not claim ownership of it yeah. or or anything. I stopped I stopped writing up my best cases and sending them off to journals, yeah, because they because you can never ever in the well, I, I would say in a rare circumstance actually say this remedy was responsible, especially. If there are other modalities going on, and so that that and my teaching changed actually from that time, um, but so, so that was the context, to the leading up of thinking about other methods um, of prescribing and that method book and meeting you in the corridor mm. and stuff.
0: You know, it's funny because I'm, as you're saying that, I'm thinking it it actually sounds so much like the experience that I had around. You know, having all these clients with autism, right? right? Yeah, and realizing because it was the parental project management that made it so I need to I needed to understand what they were talking about. And while I wasn't going to take on learning, you know how to you know help with whatever floor play or you know some of the hands on techniques that are really helpful in autism. Like there's
1: there's this. Did one you play. say floor play?
0: No, I said floor play. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I wonder if we need to edit that. No, but no probably not. But um, so that's so interesting mm. because, I mean, for me, I'm sitting, at, you know, going to work and I was busy in my practice in the early 2000s. Yeah. And, whoa. And I remember someone coming in and saying, da-da-da-da, bone broth. I wrote it down. I kept going.
0: I never <laughs> Who the that? hell's that?
1: Well, it would have been the 10th person that said right. bone broth. I'm then going... I wonder what that means. Really? I mean, I'm a nutritional... What do we say? I,
0: I, How um, do we say Neanderthal? Neanderthal. <laughs> i Neanderthal?
1: Neanderthal.
0: I say that in a loving way. I'm right. paleo with a capital P. Yeah, right. You're, you're like, you're Cro-Magnon. You're not even paleo. I mean,
1: utensils, optional. Optional.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. So... Sausage is not a vegetable. Oh... Uh, <laughs>
1: Well, if you put sage in it, uh, it you do
0: becomes... really well I mean it's it, you're funny you're left to your own devices
1: uh, not good no but but the thing is and this is one of the things I've totally appreciated by spending more and more and more and more time with you and that is that realizing the and putting together two things and that nutrition alongside of homeopathy embedded within homeopathy is the way to remove the obstacle to cure.
0: It's one of the ways. Yeah, totally. It's one of the ways. And
1: therefore, I mean, you know, wow. I mean, imagine if we had you know, we ruled the world and we could have a five-year program, you know, I right. put a bunch of nutrition in there.
0: Oh, totally. And
1: biochemistry and stuff. But
0: but I think most of our students sort of, most of our students know that now.
1: Well, they do because, but they've approached it from, you know, Western Price and some yeah. of that, those and different see, places. And it, right? it's
0: funny, right? Because when, when I got into it, it was before, I mean, the Western A. Price Foundation, there was, you know, I was, I was doing classes with, um, uh, Natasha Campbell McBride from the Gap Diet when you know, like when that was an early thing, because when I had the food um, uh, project, Alive Kitchen, mm. um, which was I, I want to say that was like 2010. And when you were doing that, yeah. you were
1: still practicing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were going to work as a homeopath, but yeah. then you know, amongst all of the activity.
0: Yeah, my office. I had it was a two story um, office and. The main floor was an industrial kitchen, a commercial kitchen, and huh. upstairs were offices. Really? It was my office upstairs, and I had a teaching space. And
1: um, So that's amazing. And so, you know, with the emphasis that we're talking around, especially the, the regimen and the removal of obstacles to cure, that's what a clinic should look like, you know? Totally. It, except it, it wasn't
0: sustainable. I loved it so much. Like, I always... You know, food is such a part. Like food as healing. You know, food is my love language. That's sort of you know, that's how I roll. Uh-huh. And but it is, uh, it's so hard. But at the time, nobody was doing it, mm. and it was so necessary. And I thought, well, maybe I could get it started, and then somebody would take it over. Um, and it just was. It was so labor intensive. But and
1: well, this is the when you were making your own bone broth.
0: Well, we did, I had another, there was another chef that I worked with and we did, um, it was actually a really great business model if somebody wants it. Um, we would take orders online. Um, we would post the menu, people would post, you know, people would order and then we would get deliveries from all the farms, like the Amish farms and the, um, uh, the farmers and the you know the meat producers and so forth they would drop off, um, and well, well during farmers market season we would pick it up, but other times of the year they would drop it off. Anyway, and then we had this you know twelve burner you know stove situation, and we would make like three day bone broth. We made all this health supportive you know nutrient dense food, so people would order online, and then we would know what we needed to make, and then people would come and pick it up, or we would deliver it. And um, you know we delivered. And
1: no pla- Is that the no plastic time as well?
0: Yeah, no plastic. Everything was in glass. Um, it was in jars. We had, there were plastic lids on like if if there was like a casserole like kind a of a thing, then. a Pyrex, click, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. But um, but no, it was it was really amazing. We did you know like healing broths and teas. Um, so we were delivering to people's houses, um, people in rehab. There was a rehab facility. We had a couple of clients there. Wow. Um, some people in hospital. And like, because, you know, you can't, I mean, people are just not getting nutrient dense food or, you know, at that time, because remember now this is going back 13 years, um, recognition, widespread recognition of, you know, allergens and sensitivities and inflammatory foods just wasn't part of the conversation. Mm. Right. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And And people were
1: combining any of the, like, let's say you're, you've got a, a, an order comes in. Yeah. And the delivery is to Pennsylvania Hospital. Yeah. Would that, would therefore, would you, and then you deliver or have it delivered. Were you also working with them homeopathically? Some of them came to me because they were my, or they were family members
0: or friends of my clients. But we actually got a bit of media coverage. um, And so there was, yeah. um, And word spread. I mean, it was really, it was amazing how fast it happened. And we were full within like, we, ma- we hit our max within, like, six weeks, but it just wasn't, for a variety of reasons, it wasn't sustainable. But mm. um, a lot of my clients, you know, so I should back up, though, because I, I think what was really interesting for me was finding out that a lot of these clients mm. didn't really know what to do. And you could say to somebody, okay, well, you need to not do this and do that or whatever, and they just look at you blankly, like you did about the bone broth. And there are people for whom it's just not it's just not going to work in their life, and they need, you know, they need help. And so I found myself, and this was part of this two thousand six thing was, I would be taking a case, and the clients are asking me so many questions about food, and you know what they could do to calm their nerves, or what you know how are they going to you know get their blood sugar managed, or you know yeah. how are they going to manage their pain? Their doctor said da da da, and I was finding myself spending more time doing patient education about food and lifestyle stuff then i was it was taking more time away from being able to get the information i needed for yeah. the homeopathy for the prescription so then i separated them and yeah, then yeah, started yeah. doing workshops and stuff like that yeah. i mean i think this is all really common now but but um, like you know it was interesting at the end of the talk last night like I, I always say to you before this like people know
1: this stuff do you know like i always feel like this is just, just it's going to be redone but i want to hear it again
0: well, and that's they want the to surprise. hear their
1: opinions validated and yeah. someone else saying them.
0: Well, and one of our students, Claire, came on at the end and she said, thanks, I need. I needed the reminder. It was good to hear. And that felt really like, okay, good. This is. It is a conversation that we can continue to have.
1: I think right? it's, I mean, when you think about it, because I heard that comment and I thought, yeah, that makes total sense because if you're making your own Kefir, I don't even know what kefir is. Oh my
0: god! Ask my kids; they or, they gag at the thought of it. I used right. to do. Oh, you're
1: doing your raw Bubbling milk, your kefir. kombucha, and you're getting mm-hmm. the raw milk from that farm, and you're getting a your honey from yeah. over there, and you're getting. So you know that's a commitment, and then life changes, and some sometimes you can't go to four places, or you can't have bubbling whatever in the kitchen. Yeah, you know, it's and really, so it was really interesting to hear that, and yeah. it, it's like we we you know cycle back to. To those practices yeah
0: well and then it becomes I, I think one of the one of the takeaways for me in having some of these conversations is the realization that these are not individual issues and I think a lot of times like our culture blames the sick person you know I, I think people people who deal with their weight probably know this very inherently where people look at someone who's overweight and think well then you should just you should do something differently, like Mm. as if obesity and laziness are, you know, one in the same, whereas people have metabolic challenges. And sometimes there are foods that become addictions and that, you know, that opiate response that people can get from carbohydrates, right? I mean, that's, that's really tough. I mean, that's where the homeopathy can come in to sort of break a cycle. But then there's the behavioral follow up, right, that has to happen. And, and I look at it, and I think, you know, we, we often blame ourselves when we're not well or people look askance when someone is sick especially God forbid they're a homeopath or a healer like you know when my kids would be sick people would look like how did that happen because like, hmm. they live in a body you know it just it happens anyway but um, <laughs> but but it's what i realized though is that it's um it's a societal problem do you know what i mean like we've built up a society that that doesn't, I don't know if it doesn't value, but it, it's, it's, it's made it so hard for people to make their own food, to take time to meditate, to breathe, to walk outside, you know, like the dopamine hits we get from our phones, like it's just, it's really hard, you know? And so having the conversation about it especially in a community setting, it was like there were a couple of moments last night where I was like, oh my gosh, like this is really great to, to sort of be acknowledging in community that we're all facing challenges in sort of the maintenance of health and best practices in how we manage our lives.
1: And so you, your first lecture in that oh. series was about food. Yeah. And you defined, and no, I think you said something. I totally, I, I I mostly d- agree, and then I totally disagree about one thing you said. Go on. You said that we should eat. Oh no, I,
0: you're talking about the Michael Pollan thing. Yeah. Michael Pollan. Um, he. So if you don't know Michael Pollan, he he sort of made his splash with the omnivores dilemma, yeah. and now he's into psychedelics. He's kind of he's a cool guy, San he Francisco is. or Berkeley. Right. Anyway, but he says eat food. Mostly Mostly plants, plants, not too much.
1: Not too much, but he's missing one thing. What? Because the way I learnt it was eat food, yeah. Mostly plants, yeah. Not too much, and only things that your grandmother would recognise as food.
0: Oh, Mm. yeah, but if it is
1: food, no, because you've got to have another another uh, another aspect to that. Okay, because Doritos would be. But that's not food. Well, but... <laughs> I it falls based. out of the <laughs> It's plant-based. But go. I like... I, I, I think about Enid. Enid, yeah. Yeah, and I think about... Um, Enid would she is recognize Alistair's this? Grandma, grandmother. Yeah. And uh, would she recognize that? And I sometimes go, no, I don't think so. Well,
0: no. my grandmother wouldn't recognize a lot of things as food mm. <laughs> because she was, you know, she wielded her wooden spoon with authority. With might. But that I love that idea though of, you know, eat food like actual food, but sometimes people don't even know what actual food is, you know.
1: I mean And so here we are, you know, stranger or peculiar. And again, I I just I like it because we are firmly committed homeopaths. Totally. That's what we do. If you haven't noticed already. Yeah. And the point is, it's not that we're deviating. It's not that, you know, our focus is elsewhere. It's that, no, with this person, with this case, is there a regimen challenge? Is there an obstacle that needs to be removed?
0: Yeah. And I, oh, and now I remember what we had said we were going to talk about, which, of course, it's a little bit too late, but it's focused on, you know, uh, um, the live Lecture the Lyme lecture that I did on Tuesday night. Yeah. So it follows two cases. One is a case that went horribly wrong, mm. and it was focused on Lyme as a pathological diagnosis. And it was a homeopath, a certified homeopath, but who um, uh, wanted to try out all the bells and whistles and who made so many remedy changes and used so many interventions and da-da-da-da-da that the case really went off the rails. The other case was a case that unfolded over time naturally and and came to sort of a beautiful space of health, you know, health and vitality and so forth. And 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 one of the things that we see over and over and over again is that the the sort of intervention of or introduction of some lifestyle change or some acknowledgement of something that we do that causes us pain or harm can stop us from changing a remedy. Mm. Right? Or the other side of it is about how, and this is something I love that our students do really well, of course, because we beat it into them with, you know, a rubber mallet. But, you know, don't change the remedy when you might just need to change the potency or the posology. We had a beautiful follow-up yesterday, Um, Dana, um, who just, just beautiful work. And um, it was a, it's a child, and she figured out that, the sweet spot for the delivery of the remedy was, a, I think it's like a an eight ounce triple dilution every third day or something. And it was really amazing to watch her logic, which was flawless, and then to see the students who are, you know, so she's a graduate, she's doing her final, you know, she's in supervision. And then to see students who are finishing their first year, you know, sort of looking like wow, you know, Mm. and I'm like, yep, you can do that too. It comes with time and experience. But it's these little things that, you know, I hope that by talking about it and, and, and really sort of, you know, getting the community on board where we're not looking for the perfect remedy to solve a giant problem, but rather to learn case management and posology and how to unfold things gradually over time, and using supportive measures to help the person so that, you know, the, the length of time that it takes for us to really get back to center from a chronic, you know, situation, that we can we can ease that time by making some really good sort of, you know, choices that support our bodies.
1: A stick of compassion.
0: Oh my gosh. Well instead
1: yeah. of a rubber mallet.
0: Oh, <laughs> I thought you meant with clients. I'm like, of course, but
1: no. Nah. No, our students.
0: No, of course.
1: Um, no rubber mallets.
0: I know that this, this conversation today didn't have all the, like, homeo juice to it.
1: Um, have we still oh, got unwoven un, un, uh, threads?
0: I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm
1: sure you started a five things.
0: And I promised that I would hold on to all of them for you. Mm. But but alas, we come to the close. <laughs> um <laughs> but I'm glad that we took the, that we took a minute to talk about the integrative stuff and just Context. supporting our bodies. Yeah. Context. Exactly.
1: And so you're gonna be talking now about movement, mindfulness, yep. and then other therapies. And other therapies.
0: Yeah. So anybody who wants to come, it's free class and mm. um, yeah. It's cool. just a fun way to spend time and you know and see faces, you know, because it's interactive. Um, the other things, next week we have a special guests. I hope, because she was very busy the last time and couldn't make it. Yes. Um, And then one of the things that I want to talk about coming up is that um, we are working on a very exciting project, which is around homeopathy and palliative and end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. And we're working with um, a group of integrative practitioners um, to really hope, really sort of um, hopefully kind of gain momentum, because it's a pretty big team working on this, to gain momentum in, you know, the the comfort care um, idea and and creating more um, awareness about, you know, the processes at the end of life and, you know, hoping that we can influence change through, you know, providing care to a lot of people. And so I've been doing a ton of research and writing the curriculum. So we're going to very soon be inviting practitioners, certified practitioners who are interested in joining this project. We'll um, We'll be introducing a course and the course will not just be about homeopathy, but it will be about you know compassionate care for people um, who have a terminal diagnosis, who are you know who are in the end of life phases of how we can um, support you know the, the client and their family, and how homeopathy you know can and should be um, an integral part of this you know of this transition time. I'm really excited about this project. Really excited.
1: Yeah. We also have 285,000 questions that have been collated from people feeding back about this podcast.
0: Wait, for real? Yeah. Well, I haven't seen them. Where are they? Uh,
1: they
0: sorry. must be in the Dropbox.
1: they somewhere in <laughs> Dropbox. And, um, wow.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. <gasps> oh my gosh, we should do a QA and a webinar, not just a podcast, but what if we did, you know, and then we could see people's faces, I suppose I shouldn't ask this question when we're. Then
1: you're gonna have, (laughs) but then it's gonna be, I've, you know, I have to look good and I can't be wearing this. I mean. Okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you have a problem with that?
1: No, I don't. Okay,
0: you're welcome. All
1: right, we'll schedule it. All right, let's do it. Nice.
0: Hey, thanks for caring about homeopathy. All right, see you folks. Bye. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics. An unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully-rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today at AHE.online.